The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. 12 minutes past nine, and what a great way to start that hour with that Derek Gripper track. Uh, just beautiful. And seems so beautiful as well, given the weather that we have here. I understand that in the Eastern Cape, it's also extremely cold and raining, also down in KwaZulu-Natal and uh, here in Johannesburg as well. Uh, cold, rainy, wet. So it seems like a good way to do it. So, Derek Ripper, he's a composer, he's an arranger, he's a musician, he's an award-winning performer, actually. And as I mentioned, he has just released a brand new album. It's a re-recording of an album he did in 2012 called One Night on Earth. We're going to find out all about that, but uh, we're going to talk more broadly as well to his work and his travels. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Michelle, how are you doing? Well, I have to say, what a great way to start our hour with that incredibly gorgeous music. And uh, we play it, and I instantly got a message from someone saying, please ask Derek Gripper what his tuning is. Now, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's always a geek question somewhere when you bring out a guitar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what is your tuning? I mean, tune us. Like. Yeah, we just tune to the spheres. And we just, you know, you just got to listen. Um, so you take a normal guitar, yeah. which is E-A-D-G-B-E, yeah. and you take your low string and you tune it down to D. So you make it an octave below the normal D string so that you've got what's called dropped D. And then you take your G string and you tune it down one semitone to F sharp. So then the tuning becomes D, A, D, F sharp, B, E. And then I put the capo on the third fret for that song. Um, and there you have it. So the tuning that you'd be hearing would be like uh, F, C, F, a D G. They asked. Okay, so that's the geek question. The um, the the thing that we need you to then do is, how do for those of us who ap- know absolutely nothing about playing the guitar but who love the music, what happens to what we're hearing and what is the capo? So, when you tune your guitar down in the way you've just described it, what happens to the sound we hear and what is the capo uh, that you mentioned? You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, a few years ago, I went to Peace of Eden near Neisner, which is a recording studio run by a guy called Howard Butcher, who recorded my album One Night on Earth. And we did two albums in a day. We did one called Libraries on Fire in the morning, which was an album of Cora transcriptions, uh, that sort of follow-up album to One Night on Earth. And we did a Bach album. The Bach album, I was playing the guitar in the standard tuning that when you buy the guitar, it comes with that tuning, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and the chorus tuning I was using this tuning that I developed to translate the music of the chorus, which is a twenty-one string harp. So all you have to know as a non-guitarist is that the strings are tuned differently, and when you're playing, there's kind of open strings in different places, and when you press your finger down, that's in different places. The difference in sound between those two recordings was so remarkable. It was like a completely different guitar, and I hadn't really noticed. You know, I said, oh, do I retune all these Bach pieces I've been learning for 20 years to get the same kind of resonance? No, it's not worth it. But then that day, I listened back to those two recordings, recorded the same day, same guitar, same microphone, and it's the resonance. It's how the different strings speak to each other is going to be completely different. And you're going to, you, it's almost like the ambiance is, is, is going to be different and how the body of the guitar responds. And that's what we're doing when we're changing the tuning of the guitar. We're changing this 
minute little subtle thing that you think is actually, oh, why would I do that? Yeah. But the difference is, yeah. really, is really remarkable. I also have to say, you were talking about the weather. Cape Town is insane today. It is amazing. The skies are blue. The ocean is clear. There's no wind. It's, it's amazing. It's a perfect day. <laughs> it's a perfect, perfect day. day. <laughs> So, Derek, uh, you know, one of the things one thinks about music, and it's interesting that you talk about the weather as well, is I, I understand that there are certain chords which elicit a sense of melancholy. So, obviously, when we have this grey, rainy weather, and perhaps we're listening to those chords which are eliciting that melancholy, as opposed to other chords which might be more perfectly aligned to that, as you say, perfect day that you are experiencing in Cape Town? You know, it's interesting. I heard a statistic uh, last week that people listen to their happy songs on their playlists, let's say, and I'm not going to get the exact numbers if it was 10,000 or 1,000, let's say 1,000 times in a period of time, but they listen to their sad songs 6,000 times. Wait, say that again. You just cracked up for a moment. They listen to their sad songs when? They listen to their sad songs eight times more. <laughs> You'd think we were suckers for punishment. We listen to sad songs more. Why would that be? Well, I think, um, you know, the emotive response of, you know, the depth that we can go to, and that's what we use music for, you know. We, it takes us into, it takes us somewhere. Yeah. And... And this happy songs are great, you know, they keep us happy and it's wonderful. But, you know, and I mean, it's, you know, I suppose the musical, the simplest musical term for happy and sad would be in the Western tradition, major and minor, you know. Yes. And major expresses the overtone series pretty much as you find it, you know. It's like when you hear Madocini playing the bow, you're hearing the overtone series being kind of surgically pulled out of a turned into music, you know. And so there's no minor in Madocini's bow because there's no minor in the overtone theory. So the minor is kind of this human-created, our separation from nature. It's us, it's culture creating something different. And I suppose we like, we like wallowing in culture. Yeah, we do, definitely. <laughs> so we're going to talk about culture in Mali. We're going to go to your second song, though. And the second song is... Um, is, in fact, uh, Tumani Debati with Jarabi. Um, and what I'd like to just ask you is, whilst we play the song, can we, um, Derek, just try and uh, improve your phone line? It, it, it is cracking up quite a bit, and we really don't want to lose what uh, is feeling like a wonderful conversation. I'm almost wishing you were, you were still so that you could play us a minor chord and a major chord just so that we knew exactly what the hell you were talking about. But let's go to Tumani. Thank you. 
Ravi, which means passion. So there's an interesting thing that we've just done there, and it talks to the story of Derek Gripper's new recording as well. We played uh, Tumani Diabate, the Mila- uh, Malian musician, Tumani Diabate and Siddiqui Diabate, and their track, Jarabi. And that was the track that uh, Derek, who has been working with Tumani, then went on to transcribe or interpret in a different way for guitar. So moving from Cora to guitar, Derek, um, tell us about your your original uh, engagement with uh, the chorus player Tumani Diabate, and I understand that you then, of course, went on to Mali as well after that. Yeah, so the recording that you first played is um, is the first recording Tumani made when he was 21 years old in 1987. Wow. He visited London for the first time and he made this beautiful, insane recording, which was the first time that the Cora was ever recorded as a solo instrument. There was another recording that year by his uncle in the Gambia, Amadou Bansang. So yeah. there's two, two firsts. But before that, the Cora had always accompanied voice, etc. So the virtuosity of what Tumani did is really was unprecedented and for a 21-year-old. So that's what I first heard of that recording and in 2002. Yeah. And I was, you know, intimidated, inspired, uh, perplexed, annoyed, <laughs> all the things, by it for a decade until I decided that I could 
hear it as the music of a composer rather than the music of an instrumentalist who's improvising. Uh-huh. And that's when I started to write it down. And because the only difference between a composer like Bach and a composer like Tumani is that with Bach, you can go to the library and get his score, the music, and it tells you which notes to play, and you play it. And you're still playing it on a different instrument because we don't have the instruments that Bach had anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. Um, and I made that recording one night on Earth. Um, and this recording that you've just heard is the kind of 10 years later um, studio. Yeah, I went back to the studio and I've been working with, you know, I run these classes, these group classes online of people who are learning the style of playing. And I've been updating especially the score of Jarabi because that's most people's entry point. It's the best place to start. If you've never played guitar before, you can learn the basic accompaniment for Jarabi in about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and it takes you all the way to what you just heard now, which is the most accurate kind of written um, version of what Tumani did back in 87 that I could get to on the guitar. Whereas in One Night on Earth, I was still being chilled about it and going, okay, that's a bit insane. I'm going to make that a bit simpler and I'm going to bring that down an octave and I'm going to, you know, this yeah. was like the no compromise as close as the geek version. <laughs> <laughs> So, Derek, you I understand that you actually went to Mali and uh, spent time with Tumani Diabate. And I, I'm, I'm always interested that you talk about the idea of the composer versus the instrumentalist. And mm-hmm. I suppose to go and spend time with a man whose entire experience is playing with the Kora, what does that mean in relation to you going there with the good old guitar? Ah, oh, it was great experience. You know, so Tumani never heard One Night on Earth, but he finally heard Libraries on Fire, which was the follow-up version. Yeah. And he, after me being traumatized by this guy playing three lines at the same time and improvising for years, you know, yeah. and he said, no, it can't be one guitar. It must be overdubbed. So I was like, ah, you know, you, you got, I got my revenge. <laughs> but, and then he invited me to come and play at this festival that he was doing called the Festival Acoustic Bamako. Yeah. So I got my first opportunity to, to go and my first opportunity to, to meet him. And it's a strange thing because, you know, one would assume that my goal would be to play with Timani. Uh, you know, if you love somebody's music, you want to play with him. But because I'm engaging with the music more as a sort of interpreter of composers it's a weird thing to play with you know you've been playing Bach's music you don't really want to go and hang out and jam with him you want to go and hear him play yeah you want to hear you know what it's what it's like so but we did we we spent some time you know I stayed at his place and we would sit up late at night and I'd play for him he'd play for me we'd play together and and he also put me right in the center of this compound where there were musicians playing. And so, and he did it with the, with the intention. He said, he wants me, he said to me, I want you to understand the spontaneity of the music. So I said, you mean like how people improvise? He said, no, not that. And, and that was a very interesting distinction. And it's something that I think is so important um, to, to draw that distinction. You know, in a world where we've got a, a kind of dichotomy between improvisers like Keith Jarrett, who gets on stage supposedly with nothing in his mind and creates and composes in the moment, and interpreters who come and play the Beethoven Violin Concerto for the five millionth time. You know, and what happens in both of those scenarios and, and what, what are the lines in between? And hmm. the Malian griots, who are these uh, hereditary musicians like Tumani, 
who've been bringing this this tradition, you know, from generation to generation for 800 years, they have this really interesting sort of way of engaging with both sides of that dichotomy, you know, where there's a very social music that's shared. It's called the kumbengo, the 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 cycle that you play. That's everybody. It's everybody's. And then what happens inside that is the improvisation or the spontaneity. And and it, it for me it was a wonderful lesson in what we as classical musicians can do to really find freedom inside these beautiful texts that we love. You know, the Bach text, the Mozart, the Bach, you know, all that Beethoven, all that stuff. So so let's Derek, let's just go briefly to when we talk about the Chora and the guitar. So for those um you, I mean, you guys are the geeks. You all know what it is. What is the difference between the two the two instruments, and and how wildly different? I mean, you can hear some of that difference, but how how different is it? Well, so the kora is a is a harp. It's from the harp family, and and what a harp is is something where you've got freely resonating strings that are plucked. So all the notes that you're going to be able to play are there as open strings that you're not you're not shortening the string or anything like that. You're just playing them open. And if you, if you run your hands along the chorus, you're going to hear the 21 notes. And those are the 21 notes you've got. You can't get a, a note in between. There's no, you know, that's it. Whereas the guitar, you've only got six strings. If you run your hands along those six strings, you're only going to hear six notes. The way that we get the other notes is by shortening the, the string, by pressing it down onto the fret. And so we have, those 21 notes of the chorus, but we also have the frets in between. So we've got, you know, the chromatic possibilities as well. You know, we can we can sharpen and flatten the note. But with the chorus, you know, if you want a bass line, it's on open strings. So you can play those open strings, and at the same time, you can play the melody. Wow. With the guitar, if wow. we're doing that, we've got to get to the bass string, or maybe it's on a second fret on the one part, and then the other, and then we've still got to get the melody. So there's a little bit of architecture to kind of work out, you know, and and what was amazing about doing these transcriptions back then is that, you know, sometimes you're up at the top of the guitar and that means you can't get down to the bottom if the bass is going like two, you know, and you, you're up at the top. You, you can't reach, you know, the, the chorus, you can reach the whole instrument at the same time in one wow. hand. It's, it's narrow. It's narrower. It's two yeah. lines of, of 11 and 10 strings. So the guitars, you know, it's, it, you know how long a guitar is, so you can't get there. And there were these beautiful moments where I'd be like, oh, I'm stuck up here. But wow, he's changed the bass line for me and made it possible for me to play it on open strings. Yeah. <laughs> it was like yeah. I kept on having to thank him, like, because obviously it, it wasn't because of guitar. You know, there's nothing, there's no similarity. But there'd be these beautiful synchronies where it was like, ah, thank you. I needed that. If you'd kept the baseline the same, I wouldn't have been able to play it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you say that there's this idea of um, that actually the Cora is a harp, which makes a, a whole lot of sense and, and takes it whole differently. Uh, very briefly, Derek, if you talk about improvisers and interpreters, and earlier you also spoke about the culture um, like so, of social music, I, that experience for you, that learning for you and spending that time in Mali with Tumani and uh, his own uh, community and colleagues and uh, musicians and that, what, what, what did you come out with apart from the technical skills and the technical engagement? Well, I learned music. My first lesson was with a violin teacher when I was seven and she tied colored strings onto my strings and then she made those same colors on a piece of paper. 
So when I saw green, I played the green string. And when I saw yellow, I played the yellow string. And I developed that, that ability to take a visual cue and translate it onto the instrument, obviously, you know, to a high degree, which means that you're training the visual cortex or whatever it is, not the auditory, you know. Yeah. And so, the, so that's the first thing that happens to most classical musicians is they'll say, oh, well, I can't improvise, you know. They're, they're taking this... Um, they're taking this... Uh, oh, shit. Now we've got to move on because I've got this other call um, that I, I can... I'll just ignore them for a little bit. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what you... That's what you... Uh, you know, so what it did for me was it taught me how to, how to hear again. And then it taught me how to just do my own thing with the notes, you know. Like, we're, we're, we're scared in classical music to, to change anything because these geniuses... Um, you know, they, they knew exactly what they wanted. So let's, um, um, let, let's go to a track. It sounds like you need to pull into a, another a call quickly, but obviously we'd like to come back to you um, because it seems to me what you're talking about is if you think about choral music, it's the difference between those who learn choir music uh, according to notes and those who learn it according to, to the tonic sulfa uh, process or journey. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And like the oral tradition versus the written tradition. And, and this music allowed me to sort of enter into, into the world of, of, of listening like a jazz musician would, you know. So it was kind of a sort of a de-classic, classicking therapy for me, you know, <laughs> where, I, where, I got, where I got to engage the other part of my brain that, that wasn't engaged by my musical education. And, and also to learn about this, this idea that texts can be the starting point but that the creativity of the of a musician is really the thing, you know, that, that's, yeah. Fantastic. We're going to go into a track uh, that's uh, Derek Gripper performing with none other than Guy Buttery. We've had him on the show before as well. And uh, the two of them are, 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 they play together an enormous amount of times and have played in different spaces as well. So let's go into that particular track.
So our guest is uh, Derek Gripper, but he is also a performer who performs uh, quite often, actually, with Guy Buttry, who's another South African musician, primarily known as a guitar player. He is currently in KwaZulu-Natal, and we're going to chat to him as well about uh, the work that the two of them are doing together. They are going to be doing a tour in the Western Cape, and we'd like to just find out a bit more about that. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back from the break, we will chat to Guy Buttry, the track you just heard. Two Chords and the Truth.